in your face. Absolutely wrapped to have Tom Bradley in the studio, the director of the Duchess of Melfi for Arant Naves Theatre Company. Welcome to 3CR. Thank you very much, James. It's lovely to be here. It is a classic play written around 1612. You've adapted it. It was written by the English writer John Webster. What can you tell us? Well, um, yeah, so it's an old, old play. Um, so I've adapted it in, a, in an attempt to, I think, uh, streamline it a bit, uh, update it a bit. But it doesn't need, in terms of its thematic structures, it doesn't need a lot of changing because um, it's one of those plays, and the Jacobean period throws up a lot of plays like this, that are very um, thematically simpatico with the modern world. Um, I think the Jacobean world, you know, the beginning of the 17th century, was a time of great change. And uh, in terms of scientific discovery, social mores, those sorts of things, which we see today. Also, I think in terms of um, how you get governed by people, and we see in, you know, I suppose the obvious examples are the United Kingdom and, and the United States. We see um, the, the, the very legitimacy of powerful figures being called into question, legitimacy of you know, our, our institutions being called into question. And I think that this play has a lot of those sort of themes through it, but also, I think, social themes about how you treat each other, how men especially treat women and control women for their own purposes. Um, and they're all very relevant still today. You know, we've got the, the Me Too um, sort of uh, campaign still still going in the world today and, and very strongly. Uh, you know, they weren't... Uh, we, well, you didn't hear them in the 17th century... But there were pamphleteers in the 17th century who were arguing for women's rights even then. The voices were very minuscule and not very loud, sadly, but, um, but this play, I think, has a, has a bit of that in, in there to, uh, to entice and interest people today and, and to send a message to people that well, the world doesn't change, the issues we face don't change over the centuries. Um, hopefully the way we face them and the way we try to solve those issues and problems uh, does change and we can actually develop into... A, more fully rounded people. It's been hailed as a as a as a tragedy, an Elizabethan yes. tragedy, uh, without giving too much away. Um, is it violent? Yes, uh, there are probably as many people dead at the end of the play on the stage as there are in Hamlet. So that's uh, most people will know Hamlet, and that there are probably what five or six dead bodies on the stage at the end of the play. Um, so yes, they pile up at the end. There are there's a a terrible murder scene in the sort of towards the end of the play. Uh, Spoiler alert, where the Duchess uh, meets a relatively grisly end. But the play, um, while it's violent and while there's sort of, uh, you know, parallels with the, um, I suppose, horror films, uh, and indeed, you know, the, the early horror movies of the 1930s took a lot of inspiration from Jacobean playwrights because of the, the way they presented live on stage, you know, murder and blood and guts. Um, so the early horror movie uh, filmmakers used those sorts of images and uh, and the sort of writing to to, to produce their films but um, there's more to the play than just horror and guts it's actually a play it's, it's a play about love uh, and the central motif of the play is about um, the love of equals and uh, the Duchess marries she's a she's a widow she, she was previously married to a man who who dies sadly in battle and she then falls in love with her steward so a man of a different social rank so again, this is going to be a marriage that is not going to be allowed by her brothers, um, because because they want to use the Duchess as a uh, as a pawn in their ambitions uh, for power, and marrying her off to the right person is going to be important in that. So, in this in this case, she falls in love with her steward, and he falls in love with her, and they get married in secret, 
So the whole play revolves around this this great secret of their love, their marriage, and the fact that over three years they have three children together and they have to hide this from the court, from everybody else around them. And her brother, she has a twin brother who's quite mad and turns into a wolf and well, thinks he turns into a wolf at the end of the play. Uh, and, he, and she has an older brother who's a cardinal, um, so <clears throat> brings all the baggage of the Catholic Church with him. And um, uh, they set spies on her to try to find out what's going on. And ultimately they do discover what's happening and they imprison her and sadly she disappears. So it's based on a true story um, and uh, a very tragic true story. And uh, so that gives it, I think, a real immediacy. It's not, it's not just a fantastical tale. This is, this is real life as it was practised certainly in, uh, 17, well, in 16th century Italy and um, it's not so far-fetched from the modern world. Sadly. Well, a lot of policing of alternative families, a lot of moralism, you know. Um, yes, yes, absolutely. A lot can be related to, I think, from our queer community for this play. I think that's absolutely right. Um, as a sort of a parallel, if you think of, um, you know, growing up queer, you're going to be uh, holding this great secret potentially that uh, about your own, your own sexuality, about your own being, that you may have difficulty expressing to your friends, your family, your relations, and with the fear that if you do, they will they will shun you. And uh, similarly in the play, you've got this this secret where the Duchess knows if she tells her brothers or if they find out, she will be. She'll be put to death, killed, effectively. Um, and so I think that the parallel there is that um, what and what the play is trying to say ultimately, I think, is that you need to um, accept people for who they are and don't judge people and allow people to live their own lives as individuals. And indeed, the very purpose of being in power and holding positions of power should be to create a, a situation where people are able to uh, fulfil their own selves as best they can. Uh, and that's what we need in the modern world in terms of you know, allowing everybody to enjoy themselves and th- their own you know, wishes for life as best they can. Now, the play sadly ends tragically for everybody involved, but hopefully it's a moral lesson for those who see it and those who read it to say, well, you know, it's important to make a stand and say, you know, y- you have to let people live their lives as they wish to live them, and it's just not a, not appropriate to try to put barriers in, in the way of that. Mm. You've got two wonderful roles. You've adapted the play, and yep. you're directing it. Do you think that, you know, do you think it would have been harder if you hadn't have adapted it? Like, do you think that, you know, that gives you great strength as a director because you've done those hard yards interpreting it before you're actually working with the actors? Oh look, absolutely. I mean, I'm. I, go back a bit. I, I first read the play at university, and I did a, um, a dressed reading of it at university. I've then done subsequently two other play, uh, two productions of it. One at um, Theatre Works, and the other at the Art Centre. Over the years, many years ago now, um, and I adapted both of those, uh, the text for the both of those productions. So this is sort of the third go of me adapting it for for another age and another audience. And I think. I've changed over those years, and so I think the way I've looked at adapting the play has changed, uh, and I've become much more aware. Obviously, um, I hope you would of of sort of the more contemporary issues in the world about uh, you know equality and and those sorts of issues in in the play itself. So um, yeah, so it makes it a lot easier because I'm pretty certain of what I want to say with the play, or or, or what I'm trying uh, to um, I suppose allow the actors to to find. Um, I don't want to be prescriptive and, you know, I don't want to go up to the actors and say, this is what the play means, therefore this is what you do. I mean, the idea, I think, of directing an actor is to try to find or allow them to find their truth in the play itself rather than me imposing from outside. 
But that said, I do have an idea of, and, and hence, you know, that why I or how I adapt the play is going to is going to direct or shape the way the the actors are going to respond to it as well. I hope. So that must be that must be quite reassuring for the cast to know that you've got a real vision for the play. <laughs> well, look, you'll have to speak to the cast about that. I, look, I hope so. I hope that's right because I mean, ultimately, uh, I mean, uh, uh, when I've acted in the past, you know, there's there's nothing worse than feeling a bit af- alone and at sea when you don't quite know what the director's wanting. You, you can't picture what the play really is is trying to do or what it's about. So I think if you've got someone who's got a vision like that, it is helpful. Um, and I hope they found it helpful. They certainly, they certainly seem to have responded magnificently. Which do you prefer, acting or directing? Uh, uh, look, if you'd asked me that um, a couple of years ago, I would have said acting, um, but directing, absolutely. Why? Uh, I think you get to a stage where when you're younger, I think it's, you know, you, you get all of that nervous energy about acting and, you know, you, you spend the day before a show, you know, feeling sick about it and then, you know, you're on stage and it's great. But um, I'm sort of over that anxiety uh, I, I don't like it, whereas directing it, I feel that I can, uh, I, I can go on a journey with the actors, but I don't then have to, you know, bear my soul in front of everybody on the stage. So, um, you know, I, I, f- I feel that the emotional, intellectual sort of satisfaction of having gone through that journey with the actors, you know, to the stage door, but I don't now, I no longer need to go over that threshold to go. Oh, I don't feel satisfied unless I'm actually out there doing it. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm in this production and I'm enjoying doing it, but uh, you know, my my ambitions are no longer to you know um, play every great role that ever was. Uh, I'd, I'd like to direct a lot of plays. Tell us about your great cast. Well, we've got um, some fantastic actors. Uh, um, the Duchess is being played by Christina Costigan, who has done. I've been doing theatre for many, many years. She runs her own theatre company called Baggage Productions and they do uh, shows uh, every year, uh, monologues and all sorts of other shows. So they produce a lot of new new writers' work, which is fantastic. She's she's wonderful. She was in the um, Arendt Knave's inaugural production of Macbeth. I'll turn around three times, the Scottish play. Um, uh, she played Lady Macbeth and was absolutely wonderful. So she's going to be just magnificent in this, in this role. Um, her twin brother is played by um, Justin Parslow, who is um, sort of coming back to the theatre a bit. He um, has a, a stellar theatrical pedigree. He was the, the, the child of, the only child of, uh, Joan Harris and Fred Parslow. And Joan and Fred both were at the Melbourne Theatre Company in the, in the early days of the company. And um, Joan then went on to run the National Theatre Drama School and, and Fred had a pretty stellar career on the stage. So, And he, he, he went to the National and... Um, and acted as a as a younger man, and then sort of, I think, lost the motivation. And but has come back now, and it's wonderful that he's agreed to be in this production. You know, we've been great friends and done uh, productions, many productions in the past. So it was lovely of him to say do this because I think he's he's magnificent in the role. And uh, looking at him, you know, running around the stage pretending to be a wolf is uh, <laughs> one of the great joys of life. So um, that's good. Sounds like there is a lot of madness in this play. There's a lot of madness in the play. Yes, yeah. I mean, and that's I mean, um, different forms of madness. I mean, so the, the Ferdinand's you know uh, lycanthropia, he turns into a wolf, is kind of a very obvious form of madness in the in the Duchess's death scene. Uh, Ferdinand uh, um, visits her with a whole lot of mad folks, so there are mad folk coming into that scene and jumping around being mad and. Uh, the cardinal, I mean, uh, who is her older brother, he doesn't um, manifest madness in 
perhaps the same obvious way, but he's clearly sociopathic and uh, and very dangerous for it. So, yeah, lots of interesting characters that um, are, are kind of larger than life. And it sounds like a wild ride for the audience. I hope so. I hope it will be. And, look, I mean, it, it, it sort of builds up. It's one of those plays that builds up its sort of pressure uh, and becomes more and more, um, I suppose, Stress-inducing in a in a good way, um, as as the tension builds in relation to the Duchess being found out, and and ultimately to the revenge at the end of the play, where Bossler manages to kill nearly everybody on the stage himself, which is um, quite a, quite a feat. <laughs> well, the Duchess of Melfi plays at the Meat Market at the Cobblestone Pavilion, February fifteenth to the twenty fourth. And, uh, yeah, the meat market is at 3 Blackwood Street in North Melbourne. Uh, director and uh, adapter of the play by John Webster, uh, Tom Bradley, thank you so much for joining us today. And I uh, love your theatre company, Arrant Knaves. It's a great title and <laughs> uh, sounds like lots of fun. Thank you, James. Thanks so much for having me. 3CR.